What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drunk Turkey Show. Today, we're going to be talking about a cold case, uh, the cold case uh, murder of Amy Renee Malovic. This is a uh, young little girl who was taken back in 1989, and her body was found several months later. Um, there has been no justice in this case. There's been a couple of people of interest, uh, but no one has been arrested. And today, we're going to be talking about some potential suspects in this case, and including bringing to light one person uh, whose name has not been put out there yet. And so with that being said, we need your help. The best way you can help out right now is to get this information out to as many people as possible by liking and sharing this, get the algorithm going, so to speak. Uh, maybe perhaps once we do name this person, somebody will remember something, something will come up and will likely hopefully lead to somebody coming forward with more information. I would highly recommend if you do have information on this case, please contact the FBI or the uh, Bay Village Police Department. If not, if you are, uh, whatever reason, don't like police or whatnot, you know, you can reach out to us with whatever information you have and we can relay that to them. So that being said, let's get into this. So a little bit of backstory, Amy Renee Malovic was born in December 11, 1978 in Little Rock, Arkansas. Her parents are named Margaret and Mark. Um, she also had an older brother named Jason. They eventually would move to Bay Village, Ohio, where both her and Jason would attend Bay Village Middle School. In that school, older kids got out about an hour later than the younger kids. So every day, Amy would go home and would be at home for approximately an hour. Now, that's not uncommon for the time in the late 80s. Um, kids of this age were often let alone. They would go out and play until dark, things of that nature. So this wasn't something out of the norm, uh, especially at that time or for that area. And so um, on Friday, October 27th, 1989, Amy left for school wearing a green uh, sweatsuit with a white windbreaker along with a uh, black riding boots, a turquoise horse head earrings with uh, gold stud in the back and, um, and was carrying her denim backpack uh, which inside included a black notebook uh, with the label uh, Buick Best in Class as her father worked for a Buick dealership. Her mother uh, worked for um, Trading Times uh, magazine. And so, anyway, Amy would normally come home straight after school, but on this particular day, she had told her mom that she was staying late to audition for the school choir. However, that was a lie. There was no choir auditions happening that day. Amy had told her friends and her brother that she had received a call from a man who had told her that she worked, that he had worked with her mother and that um, she had just received a huge promotion, which she had received a different position at her job, which I guess could be taken as a promotion, especially for a child, and that he wanted to get her a gift and didn't know what to get for her. So he needed her help to pick something out. He also told her that she couldn't tell her about this because it was a surprise. So there's some big red flags there, obviously. You know, you have somebody you don't know calling your house, telling you to meet up somewhere uh, to assist with something and not tell parents or anybody because of a surprise. Obviously, that is a huge red flag. Uh, on the day in question, after school, Amy left her bike in the parking lot and walked down to the Bay Square Shopping Center with friends located in Bay Village. The shopping center was very close to the school. Uh, Amy went and stood next to a light pole and was seen between 2.15 and 3.20. And at that time, she was approached by a man. Uh, the two were seen by witnesses 
having a brief conversation before walking off together and leading Amy into his vehicle. When Jason got home at three o'clock, he noticed that Amy wasn't home. So he called his mom to let her know. Uh, and she, you know, he told Margaret, Margaret told him not to worry about it because she was staying late for school for the choir auditions. Around 30 minutes later, she received a call from Amy saying that she was at home and everything was okay. You know, back in the day, there wasn't any caller ID or anything like that. So there was no idea uh, where she was calling from. So she obviously assumed that she was calling from the house. So two hours later, when she arrived home from work and Amy still wasn't home, she immediately started to panic and notified uh, the police and started to call up all of Amy's friends in the neighborhood. They went to neighbors' houses. They drove around town. They even went to the school to see if Amy was still there. And that's when they found her bike. Once Amy's friends started to hear about what was going on, they remembered Amy telling them about the strange man who was calling her. One of the girls told their mother about it, and that mom told Margaret, and she let the police know about that information. The next day, another call came in from a different friend of Amy's with the exact same story. And so at this point, police obviously knew that this wasn't a situation where she was just hanging out with friends somewhere, or she walked off or got lost, that this is something potentially more nefarious had occurred. Witnesses in the shopping center, and this is the shopping center, y'all. Uh, this is the Bay Village Square. This is an uh, area where it's at, aerial view. Witnesses in the shopping center were able to describe how this man looked and help, uh, help them narrow down a time for when and which she had you know, disappeared. But that's all they really knew. But at least that information, they were able to figure out that she was with the abductor at 3.30, when she called her mother to tell her that she was safe. Two witnesses did their best to describe this man, you know, how he looked, but they uh, didn't give the exact same information. They stated that he was between five foot eight and five ten. However, they reported that he may, one reported he looked younger between 25 and 35, while the other reported maybe slightly older, 35 to 45. They also explained that he had dark hair and was possibly balding. However, one witness says that he was wearing glasses at the time and, and the other did not. So the police department made two different sketches. This is what the uh, sketches look like. Um, very similar type of man, especially the haircut style, jaw features, lips, nose, mouth. Main difference here is just basically uh, the college shirt versus not a college shirt and the glasses, and, and one guy does appear to look a little bit older here in this side, see a couple of wrinkles there, uh, but not, basically the same, right? A Couple of months would go by without any further information, and then sadly, all fears came true on February 8, 1990, when Amy's body was found in a field close to the road off of County Road 1181, Rugles Township in a rural Ashland County, Ohio. Body left to be found? I think so. So that's the question I ask, was this body left to be found? You know, you have a uh, rural area, there's, there is hillside, there is uh, forested area in and around the Bay Village area. Why go and dump her in an open field? In my opinion, maybe because the body was possibly, he wanted the body to be found. It was fairly close to the roadway. Now there's an object out here to the left of where these three people are, are look like appear to be crouching down. I'm not sure what that, object is. I'm not sure what they're looking at, but either way, if I doubt this is the body uh, out to the left, I would assume that it would be where these folks are crouching down at. Also, you notice two other people looking at something in the higher grass area, relatively close to the highway roadway. An autopsy was conducted and based on the findings by the 
uh, Cuyahoga uh, County Coroner, it was stated that Amy was likely deceased within hours of her abduction and her cause of death was from multiple wounds to her neck from a uh, edged weapon and blunt force trauma to her head. Malavik's last meal was some sort of soy substance, possibly artificial chicken product or Chinese food. Other evidence includes the presence of yellow slash gold colored fibers on her body. It appears that the killer also took several souvenirs, including the girl's horse riding boots, her denim backpack, a binder with Buick best in class written on the front clasp and a turquoise uh, earrings in the shape of a horse head. It was also blood found in her underwear, uh, which came back to hers, which also indicates likely of a sexual assault. Around 300 feet away from her body uh, was a very dirty and old looking green curtain and blanket, uh, which of course was taken in as evidence and examined. They found Amy's DNA on the blanket along with dog fur that matched the dog she had at home. Golden tan fibers were also found on Amy's body, which were consistent with an automobile carpet that you would find from General Motors. The tape was also found near the body, which had three pieces of hair on it. The hair did not match Amy's DNA or anyone in the family. Uh, the hair also didn't have hair follicle present, meaning it was not pulled from the roots. So from my understanding is it probably meant that uh, it was just natural shedding hair on the carpet or in the area where her body laid. This is that green curtain that was found. And as you can see, there's a uh, squared piece taken out. It leads me to believe that there would be some sort of evidence that was found there. Unsure what it is. Now, who are the persons of interest? Well, before we get into that, I want to remind you guys of our partnership with DataSeal. If you're interested in protecting your personal privacy or personal information, such as your name, address, phone number, uh, religious preference, voting preference, things of that nature, uh, from being on the interweb, I would recommend checking out DataSeal. Link is in the description and in the comments section. They help you extinguish all of that personal information online to protect you and your family. So check it out. You get a 5% discount when you use the uh, link below. Who are these persons of interest? Well, if you've been following this case, the name Dean Runkle is probably one that sounds very familiar to you. Now, again, I'm going to start off by premising that anybody that we talk about in this case is innocent until proven guilty. Uh, that is the way the justice system works. So everything that we say from here forward is pure speculation. There is some facts to the case, but you can make your own choice and own decision referencing this man. We have spoken with James Renner, author and writer of Amy, My Search for Her Killers, Secret and Suspects in the Unsolved Murder of Amy Malovic. He's a boots on the ground type of reporter and author. He's done extensive work in this case, including interviewing uh, key witnesses in this case and including Dean Runkle himself. Him and I have been in email correspondence and have emailed each other several times and has also, also have had a video conference uh, referencing the possible person of interest. Now he goes on to say, and I want to clarify that he does not point at Dean Runkle as the killer, just states that there are some suspicious circumstances surrounding him. This is Dean Runkle. He was a teacher at the time of the incident of the abduction. Now, what makes him interesting to everybody is that Erie Lake Science Nature Center. Uh, he apparently was a volunteer at that time. And there was a couple of other females that had little girls that had gotten phone calls similar to the one that Amy got. And they had all 
at one point been to this nature center. Now in this nature center, there's a log where you write your name, address, and phone number. It's possible that if Dean is involved in this, this is how he began to get the information from not just Amy, but for all of these little girls. We were gonna look at a, an article written by James Renner uh, on the science. This is called cleavescene.com. And this is an article called uh, Person of Interest. Now in this article, it referenced uh, the possible suspect of Dean Runkle. It states here that Maddie was a friend of, of Amy's that was in the area during the time of the abduction and actually witnessed the abduction happen. She states that she saw a man wearing beige windbreaker with plaid lining, front press khakis and a button up shirt. His hair was thick and bushy above his eyes. She watched as he walked up to Amy and put his hand on her back and leaned down and whispered something in her ear. The man puts his arm around Amy's shoulder and leads her away. Maddie had assumed that this was a possible relative of Amy's. Maybe it was her dad or an uncle. She met all of his, her family. Uh, also want to reference that <clears throat> Amy's body was found near New London, Ohio, which is an area where Dean Runkle grew up in. This article goes on to say, in the years since Amy's abduction, Maddie, not her real name, has shown been shown several hundreds of photos of suspects. Only a few times as she told investigators that the man in the photo could be the same one who led Amy away. Recently, she saw a suspect's photo on a blog that James had maintained since publishing the book about the unsolved case. And she states, there have not been many photos that have been this close, she says. I would definitely tell them to investigate this guy. This article continues to talk about the situation that occurred. And we've already kind of talked about um, a lot of it, but it states here that Amy told her brother Jason and her friend Christy Ballas about the phone calls that she'd received referencing her mom's promotion and going out to go get a gift. Apparently she wasn't the only girl that received such phone calls at that time. There was at least three others, right? And this article continues to say that those three other girls went to school in North Olmsted and were roughly the same age as Amy, about 10 to 11 years old. In the weeks leading up to Amy's abduction, a man called them at their home after school and pretended to be a co-worker of either their mother or their father. He told them that he needed their help to pick out a present and asked them to come with him to the store. None of them took the bait. Uh, unfortunately, Amy did when she did agree. How did Amy's live cross pass with lives of three girls from North Olmsted she had never met at that intersection is her killer. For 19 years, the FBI and Bay Village Police Department kept the identity of these other girls secret. None have ever talked to a reporter until they found uh, James in 2006. At that time, they told him that on the week of St. Patrick's Day in 2005, a retired FBI agent who worked on Amy's case contacted these girls from North Olmsted. Uh, he said that they said that he seemed excited about the new lead. He asked them if they remember visiting the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center in Bay Village. The center had been one of Amy's favorite places. It was only then in 2005 that investigators first learned each of them had gone to the Nature Center in the weeks leading up to the abduction. He asked them if they remembered writing their names and home numbers in a logbook by the front doors. A couple thought they had. He gave them the name of a suspect and asked them if it sounded familiar. It didn't. Well, fast forward. This says here that then in August of 2008, a, a man named Tony Perchinski called to tell James that he had heard from a local cop that a man who had been Perchinski's eighth grade science teacher in 1991, Dean Runkle, was a suspect in Amy's case. And here's the weird thing, said Perchinski. He used to tell us about 
the science center that he volunteered at, and I realized the nature center was in Bay Village. Uh, James requested Runkle's personal file from Nord Junior High School and ran his name through a search of newspaper articles. I quickly, he quickly began to see why this man was on the FBI's list of priorities. Runkle was born in New London and grew up in a farmhouse just a couple of miles from where Amy's body was dumped along County Road 1181. The article continues to describe Dean as an eccentric teacher from the beginning. He often filmed his students in class cutting the film later at home. He also photographed his students regularly, developing the negatives himself. He kept a cot in the side room and sometimes slept there overnight. When he couldn't find a textbook up to his standards, he wrote his own and passed it to the kids. The article says something happened in 1987. Runkle resigned abruptly, explaining that he had to leave for health reasons. He told different stories to administrators and students, everything from eating bad food while on a safari in Africa to contracting a blood disease after cutting his hand on a coral. Whatever the reason, Runkle moved back in with his parents in New London and got a job working at a pet store. The store bred pet mice, but when the mice population exploded, Runkle began giving the mice away to local nature centers, says the store former owner, Annetta McCarthy. She says he probably gave some to the Lake Erie Nature Center. So there's another possible connection there. In the fall of 1989, Runkle applied for a teaching position in North Junior High School in Amherst and was hired on the glowing recommendation of former administrators from Vermilion. He promptly began building a new zoo and inviting kids to help him with the animals after school. Uh, Runkle then quit again suddenly in 2003. According to his personal file, he gave no reason, declined to apply for a sabbatical that would have allowed him to reach retirement and didn't even complete the paperwork necessary for his pension. So this is around the time that the investigators are kind of trying to figure out or find out about this nature center. Maybe this is around the time FBI and law enforcement are asking the nature center about people and maybe perhaps it got back to them. The article continues that in August, after hearing about Prochinsky, uh, James sent over 500 emails to former students of Runkles through MySpace and Facebook and a lot of, got a lot of replies, but there was some that remember a dark side of Runkle. Jen Crouch says Runkle liked to tell uh, tell her about pranks he played on friends. One such prank supposedly involved dipping a cat in liquid nitrogen and then smashing the frozen carcass to bits on the floor. He would stare at me in class, says Kim Rayburn. It was more than creepy. It felt like an animal noticing you walk into the room. He had a few girls he was extra close to, like the girl who sat in front of me. I'd watch him put his left hand on her back and bend down to whisper in her ear. It seems inappropriate now, the way he treated some of the girls. Runkle liked to tell boys sexual jokes, says Derek Chase. He talked about the blow up. He talked about the blow up dolls he kept at his home and the way the dashboard in his Grand Prix looked like breasts. Whenever I was in his car, he'd say, there are my breasts. These are my double D's, recalls Chase. Sometimes he talked about how his father beat him if he didn't finish his dinner when he was younger. And he talked about how he liked kids who hadn't reached puberty yet because he was a runt too. A female student from his class in 1989 says she noticed similarities between Runkle and the composite sketch of Amy's abductor when she learned he was also living in the New London area, not far from where they found Amy. She called the Amherst police and then, and then confronted Runkle directly. I said, I know you're the one who killed Amy, she recalls. His eyes popped out of his head. He didn't say anything, just walked past me. In 1994, Christina Atkins says she overheard Runkle say something to 
something that shocked her. She says, Ronko and another teacher were discussing the pregnancy of an eighth grader and which a boy and which boy might be the father. Wish it was me, said Ronko, according to Adkins. That's creepy as hell. He's one of those men who make you feel uncomfortable when you're alone with them, she says. He made comments about girls' outfits. I remember when he saw one girl with a skirt that was way too short. He said, that's not appropriate, but I'm glad you wore it to my class. In lab, he would stand behind me and push his chest against me. It was very touchy. Atkins says she and other girls, other young girls were questioned about Runkle's behavior by the superintendent in 1995. No mention of that investigation was contained in his personal file. Also not in his personal file were the, the occasions when Runkle was caught alone with students in his gold-colored Grand Prix by both the principal and a policeman who let him go with a warning. Gold fibers were found on Amy's body, according to the Ashland County coroner's file on the case. So the article says that Runkle sold his Grand Prix in 1991, so two years after the abduction, approximately a year after her body was found. He stayed, James stated he attempted to locate it in hopes of taking a sample of the carpet that would or could be compared to the gold fibers found on Amy, he tracked it down to a junkyard in rural West Virginia. But when he got there in September, he was told it had already been scrapped a long time ago. Several students say they were invited back to Runkle's apartment after school, but only, but the only student who they knew who went inside was a boy named Dan who attended Sailor, Sailor Way Middle School. Today, Dan is living in a rundown apartment complex in Vermilion. When reached out at home, he admits to being Runkle's favorite for a while. He says that after he left for high school, Runkle used to write him letters. Over time, the letters became sexual in nature. Dan says their relationship was never physical. In 1987, Runkle set a few thousand dollars aside in a trust for Dan, according to Dan's mother, but Runkle eventually asked for the money back. It appears Dan stopped hanging out with Runkle in the fall of 1989. These are some very disturbing behaviors by, by Runkle. And, you know, I'm not sure if he's involved. You know, main piece of evidence that you know leads me to believe that maybe perhaps he's not involved is how would he have known about the promotion of his mother at uh, of Amy's mother at work? You know that's the biggest question for me. Like how would he know those things? If he didn't commit this crime, it definitely does seem like he's possibly have committed other crimes. But I do understand why and see why he is a uh, person's of interest in this case. Not to mention if you look at his picture here. And we go back to the composite that was put out. There's some pretty, pretty good similarities. And as I mentioned earlier, myself and James Renner have been in contact with each other via email and one time during a video conference. I've been able to ask him a few questions referencing Runkle. A lot of those questions are answered in this article. So I'm only going to go through some of those questions that were not. The first question was Runkle, did he have a connection to Amy's family? According to James Renner, he's not, there wasn't any that he was aware of. Um, that, like I said, that was the biggest question for me when it comes to the possible connection, whether or not Runkle knew if uh, Amy's mom had a uh, promotion. I asked him if he knew or was aware if Runkle had an alibi during the disappearance. He said he did not. I asked him about reports against Runkle, maybe not criminal, but suspicious. And did he treat little girls differently in his classroom? And he says that there was all many types of reports, many of those that we already went through. I also asked him if there was ever a connection to the area where the body was found. He said, yes, that he was lived by and was from nearby New London. 
And so the final question that I asked James was, I know you've talked to Runkel. Has he said anything suspicious? And he says, yes, it comes down to whether or not he was at the Nature Center or not. When he was interviewed by police in 2005, they told James that they had asked him and he had said no. But when James tracked him down to Florida, he bluffed him and said, Dean, what would you say if I told you one of your students had a photo of you with them at the Nature Center? He said, I never told police I wasn't there. I only told them I don't remember being there. He was lying about the Nature Center. That was very suspicious to James. That's very suspicious to me. But he is not the only suspect. In fact, there's one more. So when it comes to the uh, second possible person of interest, uh, it started off with an article that came out uh, a couple of years ago in referencing this case, a breakthrough in the case. Uh, it came out through a Cleveland News 5 from ABC, and it was a tip from a former uh, ex-girlfriend of a guy um, that she thinks is possibly the suspect in this case. And I'll, I'll read you the tip. So it's according to a sworn affidavit from the Bay Village detective, uh, from a Bay Village detective, the women told police at the time of Amy's disappearance, a man, his former uh and his former girlfriend lived a mile, less than a mile and a half away from the shopping center where uh, Malovic was last seen alive, taken by an unidentified man. In the affidavit, police said that the man worked in Bay Village area at the time and had family living there, including a niece in the same grade as Malovic. Uh, court records show that police said that the women told investigators that the man did not come home that night, that Amy was abducted. Police said that the woman indicated it was, un it was unlike the man to disappear and not come home overnight. Investigators said the woman stated that her former boyfriend did call her around 10 p.m. the night of the abduction to ask if she was aware of the news coverage of Amy's disappearance. A detective also said that the woman told him that she believed she traveled with her former boyfriend to Ashland County on one or more trips. So he had been in that area a couple of times, drove through there a couple of times, uh, maybe perhaps even between the time that her body was discovered. If that ends up being the case, it's extremely eye-opening and a big red flag. So according to the investigators, the man's appearance in the late 19, in late 1989 was consistent with one or two, one of the two major suspect composites obtained via witness interviews. In an affidavit, investigators said that in May 2020, two witnesses who saw Melovic talking with a man in a shopping center that day of her abduction picked the man in question a picture out of a photo lineup as the person they recalled seeing Amy Malavik talking to the day she was last seen. So this person was also picked from a photo lineup. Uh, the, the car, police said that gold fibers were found in Amy's clothing after her body was discovered in Ashland County. The detective told Cuyahoga County judge that the man in question drove a gold Oldsmobile with a tan leather interior, with tan interior, I'm sorry, in 1989 and 1990. According to court records, an FBI agent noted a gold Oldsmobile registered to the man drove through an intersection where Malovic's body was dumped on the day that she was discovered. A Bay Village detective wrote, investigation has not been able to show any reason why the man should have been near Amy Malovic's body in recovery site uh, on 2-8-1990. In November of 2019, just days after the 30th anniversary of Amy's abduction, the detectives wrote the man in question and walked into the Bay Village Police Department and talked to investigators uh, over the course of two days. In a sworn affidavit, the detective said that the man made very suspicious statements. According to court records, those include that in 1989 and 1990 was a dark period in his life and that the man indicated that he, had, he may have met Amy's mother, Margaret, in a bar. 
Detectives wrote that when asked if he had ever called Amy Malavik prior to the abduction, the man answered, I could have, and that it could have been a wrong number. Police said when they asked the man if Amy was, was in his car, he said, I don't believe so. But when they asked again if it was possible, the man said, okay, but I don't know what the situation would have been. The detective said the man agreed it was possible that his DNA would be on a curtain found um, near Amy's body, but said, I don't, I did not put it there. And that the, his DNA would be on Amy's body if somebody planted it on her. Investigators said that the man agreed to a DNA swab and a polygraph test. Police said that the results of the polygraph test determined that there was deception indicated. Detectives also told the judge that the man did not show up the next day as planned to sign paperwork allowing police to search a storage unit. According to the court records, police obtained a warrant, searched the storage unit where officers seized evidence. There's no mention of what police took. Five on your side, which is the um, news broadcast that uh, broke, broke this information, uh, stated uh, they tried calling and texting the man in question to ask him about the case. However, he never responded. Police said he's currently homeless and living in his car. So there's been some rumors and, uh, and speculation out there that the person that came forward was referencing Dean Runkle, the man that we told we spoke about earlier. However, we like I mentioned before we have several sources in this case, some that want to remain anonymous. And one of our sources has indicated that the person that was identified in the photo lineup referencing this case was William McClellan, goes by the name of Bill. As you can see, there is some sort, a little bit of a resemblance to the um, this photo here. He also is wearing glasses. And so this is him, Bill McClellan. He was a uh, he was from Vermilion High School. This is the person that has been speculated to have been positively ID'd by one of the witnesses there. And that is the boyfriend or ex-boyfriend to the girl that came forward. Here is a more updated picture. If you guys know anything about this man, he is apparently living in his car in the Cleveland area still. If you guys know anything about him or if this jogs a memory or sparks up anything, please contact us, contact the authorities, contact the FBI. We need to get this case solved, y'all. Uh, this is the man that is also believed to have failed the polygraph test. Now, we read earlier that in that article that Amy was seen from 2.15 to 3.20 at uh, the base village square, that it was at 3.30 that when she had contacted her mom. Now, if it was Dean Runkle, that would have probably led me to believe that he uh, would have had to have stopped somewhere and used a pay phone or something because he did not live in the area of the village. And I don't think he could have gotten back to Vermilion in time within that 10 minute time frame. It's possible, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I'm not from the area. However, we have found out that William only lived two minutes away from this area and only lived approximately half a mile from um, from Bay Village Square Shopping Center. And so this is some of the information that we were able to find on him and what we've been able to locate. Uh, so um, Mr. McClellan is the adopted son of Fernie L. Blackman. Uh, it says right here that, um, that she is the uh, foster mother for William McClellan and that her ex-husband or her husband who was deceased prior to her is Calvin Charles Blackman. Cal Blackman was the co-founder of Radcon. Radcon was located near the bar uh, and 
workplace of Margaret. And so uh, it's possible that this gentleman met Margaret at the mall, I mean, at that bar and got the information about her promotion. Because there's one question that bothers me when it comes to Dean Runkle is how did he know about the, the, the mom's promotion? How did he know about those things? Was it just a lucky guess? Or perhaps was the person that was notified told? Now, how would he have gotten her phone number or things of that nature? Maybe perhaps uh, Margaret gave him the phone number or perhaps, you know, there was another thing that I found odd in this case. And that was the fact that one of the things that was taken was a Buick best in class notebook that, that was given to Amy from her father who worked at, at Buick and would travel to some of the Buick Oldsmobile and Cadillac dealerships in the area. Runkle, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, McClellan worked for his father's company, which apparently they were fairly wealthy at the time. I would assume somebody of that wealth status would have purchased that vehicle brand new. Is it possible he also made contact or had in contact with Amy's father? Now, when it comes to where they live, um, we were able to locate Lynn Blackman, who is tied with um, Calvin C. Blackman out of Vermillion, Ohio. She also has an address on Lake Road in Bay Village, Ohio. So we were able to put those pieces together. Now, when it comes to this case, like I mentioned before, the timing in which she made that phone call leads me to believe that she was either at a payphone fairly soon or that um, he took her back to her place. Now, um, she was also found, as we read earlier, with uh, the autopsy stated that she had you know, artificial meat, possibly Chinese food. Maybe perhaps it was uh, chicken nuggets from a nearby McDonald's. Who knows? Maybe that was part of the persuasion to get her to come into the car or to go and eat. One of those things. I'm not sure. But, you know, I could possibly believe that if uh, this young, if this man here knew Amy's mother and then also stated, hey, I also know your dad, that would, that would probably uh, inquire some possible trust there that unfortunately shouldn't have been given. And so when it comes to this case, I think that is, you know, very likely or, or whatnot that it's possible that this is the guy. Uh, again, everybody is innocent until proven guilty. Uh, the only thing that we know for sure is that um, we have some sources that have stated that this is the man who was positively ID'd by the witnesses as the person um, who was dating the girl who came forward. Now, when it comes to where the body was was dropped or, or left behind, it is about an hour away from Bay Village. Um, but if we go back to these pictures, her body was located very close to the roadway in an open area. There are wooded areas near Bay Village and areas that would have been more difficult to have found her body. If this is William McClellan's doing and he knew of the mother and had a had talks with her and maybe even possibly knew the father maybe perhaps he wanted her body to be found because of that relationship with those uh with those parents versus going out to a place that's more uh desolate where you know not so close to a roadway now this is out in the county out in the back roads and country roads where there's not very many lights and based on the roadway that i can see here it's a very long straight road I believe that he uh, came out, 
pulled her body out, dropped her off, took off immediately. Remember that he had the uh, uh, the curtain, got out and threw the curtain out into the field. And so if you guys have any information on Bill, AKA, or Will, AKA Bill McClellan, uh, please reach out to, you know, authorities. If you don't feel comfortable talking to the authorities, you, know, you can reach out to us. We're more than happy to talk to you. If you want to remain anonymous, we can do that as well. Uh, our goal here is just to get this uh, situation solved. This this is a, uh, it's been a long time coming. And from my understanding is they got some evidence, whether it was from the storage location, which they, the police did get a warrant for, and they were able to seize some sort of evidence. And, um, and also the, you know, you have the positive, uh, the positive identity from one of the witness there. And then you have the ex-girlfriend coming forward, also giving her statement. So let me know what you guys think in the comment section. Do you guys think uh, that William McClellan should be uh, investigated a little bit more harshly by the police department? I'm sure he is. Uh, from my understanding, based on everything that I've heard, is they're waiting for the DNA uh, for technology to catch up so that they can test the DNA on the hair to match it to a suspect because it was a non-follicle rooted hair. Um, technology is just not there yet, but maybe perhaps now that we know who this person may have been, maybe somebody saw something, maybe somebody saw them at a restaurant somewhere, uh, maybe somebody heard him say something weird in in his past life or in his past in the past up until this point. Uh, maybe he's made some odd statements, maybe not used any names, but you know, something that maybe now that we know that police were at least possibly looking at him at one point, maybe that'll jog somebody's memory. Uh, please hit that like and subscribe button. Remember to share this as we're trying to get this information to as many people as possible. That being said, I'm Daniel J. This is the Drunk Turkey Show. Peace.